0: Welcome to KG News Morning Magazine. It's Monday, February sixth of twenty twenty-three. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Coming up on today's program, we'll hear from a state representative about legislation that aims to require certain large employers to provide predictable pay and schedules to hourly wage workers. And. CityCast Denver takes us to Globeville, Illyria, Swansea to see how residents are reclaiming expropriated land through collective murals. After the BBC News headlines, we'll hear the latest commentary from Jim Hightower. Then, it's a public affair. Host Frank Dubovsky talks with John Terre, CEO of the Boulder Chamber of Commerce, about the Chamber's current priorities. Then at 9 a.m., we'll bring you Counterspin, a look at fairness and accuracy in reporting. After that, Doug Gertner will be in the Denver studio for the Morning Sound Alternative. That's all still ahead this morning, but first, the headlines with KGNU's Stacy Johnson.
1: Boulder County Housing and Human Services will accept online applications for federally funded housing vouchers for one day only this week. The agency will open the window for Section 8 and housing assistance vouchers at 8.30 a.m. Wednesday, February 8. The window closes the same day at 4.30 p.m. The agency says it will conduct a lottery to award the 100 available vouchers to qualifying renters. To qualify for the assistance, applicants must earn 50% or less of the area median income or live on a fixed income, such as Social Security payments. Program Manager Kelly Gonzalez says the county is encouraging everyone to apply, even if individuals are unsure of their eligibility. Boulder's Golden West Assistant Living Facility is preparing to close its doors on March 4th. The facility is one of only four in Boulder County that accepts Medicaid. Erica Corson, Boulder County's long-term care omsmusman, told the Longmont leader four other assisted living facilities in Boulder County ended their Medicaid contracts during the past year. The facilities have reportedly experienced delays and Medicaid payments insufficient to sustain their operations. This has forced facilities like Golden West to rely on private pay clients to offset low Medicaid reimbursement. Many private-pay residents moved out of assisted living facilities during the pandemic. Boulder County's Long-Term Care Office will hold an online informational session Tuesday, February 7th at noon. Corson said the aim of Tuesday's webinar is to bring awareness on what things people need to think about and clarify misconceptions accompanying long-term care. On the topic of Medicaid, the Colorado Department of Healthcare Policy and Financing, the agency that runs Medicaid programs throughout the state, is seeking a 1.7% budget increase from state lawmakers for the next fiscal year. According to the Denver Post, the agency spends about $14 billion on Medicaid, with federal funds included, and is seeking just over $85 million from state lawmakers. The Denver Post reports the agency aims to target the largest portion of its budget proposal towards wage increases for home health workers who provide nursing or home health support to people with conditions that require round-the-clock care. Families of individuals requiring 24 7 care say it's difficult to find qualified nurses who will work at the rate Medicaid pays. Among other budget requests, the agency is also hoping to increase rates paid to nursing homes and end most copays. A new bill is seeking to limit the cost of EpiPen statewide. KGNU's Jack Armstrong has more.
0: The bill limits the copay for EpiPen auto injectors to $60 and passed through Colorado's House of Representatives last week. EpiPens deliver life-saving doses of epinephrine to alleviate symptoms of severe food allergies. Mylan, the company that manufactures the drugs in recent years, has charged more than $600 for a two-pack of the life-saving drug. The bill breaks up Mylan's market monopoly and would save Coloradans thousands of dollars. According to the Colorado Newsline, representatives who support the bill say Coloradans should not have to choose between paying rent and accessing life-saving medication. Those in opposition say mandates like this one slowly give way to hikes in insurance costs that affect all Coloradans. The bill is now waiting to be heard by a House Appropriations Committee for its finalization. For KGNU, I'm Jack Armstrong.
1: Fort Collins is moving toward with Republic Services as its only provider for waste management and recycling services. KGNU's Jake Crowley has more.
2: The Arizona-based waste disposal company Republic Services is now closer to being the official waste management operator for the city of Fort Collins after a months-long selection process. According to the Coloradan, Fort Collins selected Republic Services out of three waste management providers that applied to the city council. If approved, Fort Collins residents will receive new weekly recycling and yard trimming services from Republic starting in 2024 until 2029. The Colorado reports Fort Collins residents that would prefer a different provider will have to pay a monthly fee of $11.10. For KGNU, I'm Jake Crowley.
1: Denver Parks and Recreation, along with Winter Park, opened on Saturday, the Ruby Hill Rail Yard, a free urban terrain park for snowboarders and skiers. The park will open for winter activities until March and is located in southwest Denver near South Platte River Drive and West Florida Avenue. According to Denver officials, the park will also offer free rentals of snowboards, boots and helmets on Thursdays from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. and Saturday from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Colorado Parks and Wildlife officials captured and collared two male wolves last Thursday in the North Park area of Jackson County. The agency says one of the wolves was a recapture with a damaged collar, while the other was a first-time capture and is likely the offspring of the other. The agency said it has been receiving reports of wolves in the area during the past couple of weeks. Last winter, a pack of wolves, including the breeding male captured last week, migrated from Wyoming and attacked and killed cows and dogs of North Park area ranchers. Officials believe only half of the original eight-member pack is alive as Wyoming allows legal hunting of the predators. Colorado Parks and Wildlife spokesman Travis Duncan told the Colorado Sun the two males are the only wolves with working collars in Colorado. Wildlife officials say they will get satellite data from the collars every few days, which will allow them to gain insight into wolf movement and activity, especially as state officials plan on reintroducing gray wolves west of the continental divide as part of a narrowly approved and highly controversial 2020 ballot measure. For today's weather, the National Weather Service says skies will be partly sunny with a high near 40 for Denver and Fort Collins and a high near 39 for Boulder. Today will also be breezy with winds gusting as high as 37 miles per hour for Fort Collins and 31 miles per hour for Boulder. Tonight will be mostly cloudy, then gradually becoming clear with a low of 17 degrees for Fort Collins and 21 degrees for Denver and Boulder. Winds will continue to be blustery for Fort Collins throughout the evening. For KGNU, I'm Stacey Johnson.
0: You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. The 74th General Assembly legislative session kicked off last month, and bills are now winding their way through committees. Today, we'll be focusing on one of them, HB 1118, to establish fair workweek employment standards. Joining me live is one of the bill's sponsors, Representative Emily Sirota. Good morning. Good morning, Shannon. Great to be with you today. Well, thank you for being here. First, what employment standards does this bill seek to enact?
3: This bill seeks to provide some predictable scheduling rules in the workplace for workers who work in food and beverage service, retail and food and beverage manufacturing sectors to address uh, what we see frequently in this in this sector, which is very unpredictable scheduling practices so that folks don't know when they will be called into work they may be on call lots of last minute schedule changes and the problem this is trying to address is what um, these predictable schedules lead to which is unstable um, income uh, challenges around meeting life's needs like child care and elder care making doctor's appointments and living a
0: dignified life you mentioned that the industries that are mostly um, targeted in this bill are the food and beverage industry and retail. Is it because these are the main offenders or is this kind of a, a start?
3: It could be a start, but these really are the sectors where we have seen these laws um, implemented in other localities and states. so uh, these laws tend to be around the um, around food and beverage. Of retail and sometimes hospitality. That's where we frequently see it.
0: And what is the concept of retention pay in this bill? Well, there
3: are many folks who work in these often low wage hourly um, sectors, and oftentimes they may only get, you know, 20 hours, 15 hours a week, but they'd like more. And so the whole idea is if you're, if a place of business is going to hire someone new. Before they do that, they ought to make sure that the folks who are already working there uh, don't want the hours that they have to offer.
0: How would this bill affect on-call workers or workers who may want to be available to pick up additional shifts? And since schedules would need to be set weeks in advance, how would this affect things like requests for time off? Uh, folks
3: can still request all of those things the bill provides a good balance of predictability so that workers can get their schedules two weeks in advance they're able to plan their lives but workers are still able with no penalty to the worker or the employer able to trade shifts among uh, each other they're able to request a change to their schedule without penalty to the employer so it still provides that flexibility that that folks need and and these industries say they rely on, but it does place more predictability for both the employer and the employee about what the works.
0: How did this bill come into being? Were there any particular factors or circumstances or specific cases that led to introducing this legislation? Well,
3: yes, we have seen data from around the country about the challenges around um, lack of predictability in in scheduling, and the Harvard Shift Project actually did a research project here in Colorado, and they surveyed Colorado workers in these sectors and found really remarkable data about um, what is happening in this workforce, the um stress the anxiety the lack of sleep and negative health outcomes that are present when folks don't have predictable schedules the number of people who experience hunger when they lack predictable schedules so i found the data really compelling when you actually check in with uh the folks in these sectors
0: we only have one minute so a big question for a very little amount of time but just out of curiosity as an insider is there anything in particular you would like the general public to know about the legislative process?
3: Well, I think that uh, folks need to realize that there are many high paid lobbyists who walk the halls of the Capitol. And it's easy to get caught up in what happens under the dome. But we know from polls. that folks find extremely fair across Democrats, Republicans, independents, because people just think it's fair for you to know your schedule a couple weeks in advance so you can plan for your life and your income. Um, So let your legislators know if you too share that, uh, that idea that you think this kind of
0: predictable scheduling law is fair. Representative Emily Sirota, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You are listening to The Morning Magazine on KGNU. I'm your host, Shannon Young. Our weekly excerpt of CityCast Denver is next. Anyone who's been around Denver has likely seen the work of internationally renowned artist Anthony Garcia. Born and raised in Globeville, he paints with bold, bright colors and Serape-inspired patterns to create murals that enrobe whole buildings across the metro area and take over gallery walls from Miami to Amsterdam. Recently, the artist collaborated with the GES Coalition, an environmental and housing justice organization created by and serving the Globeville-Elyria-Swansea neighborhoods to paint two homes taken from GES families through eminent domain. CityCast Denver host Bree Davies met up with Anthony and GES Coalition organizer Alfonso Espino on the block where these two houses still stand to talk about how art, activism, and community connection made this painting project a reality.
4: So we're in a parking lot off of I-70. I think the biggest building you can see from the highway is the Stock Show Complex, but we're here to talk about a smaller building that's right in front of us that's been painted and I'm here with my friend Anthony Garcia. So Anthony, describe the building, what we're looking at.
5: So this building was a duplex that was occupied years ago. Ever since they had moved the people out of this building, it's been sitting here empty for a number of years. We've been working with the GES Coalition trying to do an art project on this particular corner. And we thought that this building would be an excellent canvas to kind of experiment and work on um, a project on a bigger scale.
4: You grew up around here, right? Correct. How do you feel about this particular building or being in this place and painting?
5: I got my start off in my neighborhood doing projects around the neighborhood, and it quickly spread throughout Denver and throughout the United States, actually. So it's nice to be able to come back home and work on a project later on in my career when I'm starting to become more successful and more sought after. So it's nice to kind of bring something back to the neighborhood again.
4: Alfonso Espino, how did this building project get started, this particular incarnation of this building we're looking at right now?
2: The coalition has been organizing around housing justice for a very long time now, for the better part of almost 10 years at this point. Uh, The land trust was born about five years ago. It's building homes for people in the neighborhood, people to come back. Um, And a couple of years ago, there was conversations around what are we supposed to do to grow the land trust? What are we supposed to do? What should we do in order to extend the reach of the people that both materially benefits by putting them into homes? Hopefully that's the goal, of course. Like, How can we do that in the most important Part of that formula is always land, especially in these neighborhoods that have, you know, been victims of the rampant speculation because of the National Western Center redevelopment, you know, over a billion dollars coming in, CSU coming in as a partner, the I-70 redevelopment project, another billion dollars right there just coming in. All of this land that they acquired through Eminent Domain or the threat of Eminent Domain, which is essentially the same thing, because it's like either you take the money now or we're going to do it. That's what happened to these homes that are still standing. The impression everybody had was that they were going to knock everything down, but they didn't at the end of the day. Uh, and to be quite honest, you know, we had a very limited impact on it falling apart. It had more to do with the fact that COVID hit. Since then, we've been organizing this campaign to demand that, that as much of this land as possible, in my opinion, all of it, uh, should go back to the community. For us, the land trust is a mechanism to deliver it through because it is actually ran by neighbors. It is benefiting neighbors right now, and it will be controlled by neighbors until I drop dead, until they drop dead. It's
4: like a collective ownership of yeah, land.
2: That is yeah, exactly. That's the land trust in a nutshell. So coming back to where we are right now, we've been trying to organize events, uh, specifically on this land to remind our people, to tell our people not just about the campaign, but like really imagine what we could do if we win that land. You know, it's almost an obligation or else nobody's gonna build us anything, you know. Last year, we were organizing what came out of from our working committee, uh, which is like a, a group of leaders in the neighborhood that are actually like helping us run this campaign. This idea of a plaza, because obviously a lot of people around here are from countries like Mexico, where it's like a
4: public gathering, yeah, public place. gathering
2: spaces are very, yeah. very popular and uh, obviously have an emotional attachment just to the idea of it. Something that we don't have here as often. So you know. We started working on that at uh, the beginning of last year, and we chose this spot for obvious reasons. It's like the most easily uh, recognizable corner when you talk about uh, what is this piece of land. And in that, we were like, we should like try to bring it back to life as much as possible. One of the easiest ways, I don't wanna call it easy because I'm obviously not the artist painting this, but one of the most uh, recognizable ways to do that is to you know put some color back into it. And I mean, in our neighborhood, there's like one person that you go to for colors,
5: if you really want colors, and that's Anthony.
4: How does it feel to paint, with other pe- paint your work with other people?
5: I enjoy painting with other people, especially in these neighborhoods where it's the people from the neighborhood that are painting, because when I leave, um, you know, they're still here every day and they live with these pieces. And so it's more personalized and it becomes their piece as opposed to me just coming into a neighborhood, painting something and leaving, which happens a lot with other artists.
2: Uh, at first it was painting this house behind me which is uh, one of our coalition members david's house his old house that was taken from him david torres david torres yeah
4: they lost their homes twice twice to so the i-70 expansion i-70 first. expansion over decades they moved
2: here and then yeah. they took it again from them for this <sighs> redevelopment so emotionally it's like significant to one of our members yeah and you know for us
4: And Alfonso walked me around the two buildings and told me more about the story of how this happened. Two vacant homes covered in bright, beautiful murals in the middle of a sea of parking lots and dispensaries and I-70. I only wish I saw it full of life back in October when they invited their whole community out to paint these buildings together. And imagine what this place could look like if they were able to take back the power to shape their own neighborhood's future.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, if you look up like on our coalition Instagram, you'll see like pictures from the event. And I think what we were able to do, thanks to Anthony's help, was in this space that we occupied, at least for the day, and demonstrated to our neighbors what we could do if we build things together, as opposed to waiting for people to do it for us. We were able to bring this space back to life. And I think it's also interesting, kind of just putting ourselves in like a historical context. I was recently reading an article about how the world is losing color. It's -hmm. a a study that just happened about how uh, there's less and less color being produced And then you just look at like the the new manufactured buildings and they're just lifeless, colorless buildings. And that's more and more what you see. So I think I didn't realize that until (laughs) until I read that article, like how important it is, just the simple act of putting color back into your spaces. So for us, what it really means is like restaking a claim. You know, this is our, our community. So for us, it's significant to have even, gotten permission from the city to allow us to do this in part because of the pressure that we're putting on them you know through this campaign and they want to look good but I think the best way that they could look good is to give the land back to the people.
4: So you said you have to get permission from the city to paint a building that was owned by a community member taken by the city but this building is now it's kind of just like a monument to I can't imagine if that was my family
2: home. Well imagine the even deeper pain that they were supposed to tear it down yeah that's why they kicked these people out that's what they told them when they took their homes from them when they forced them to sell it to them with the threat of the eminent domain and i think that's important to to remind your listeners of what the significance of a home really is it's not just the structure it's those memories that are lost and i kind of see like these poor buildings is like now they they have like these like wandering memories like similars to ghosts that can't have their peace they can't like rest in peace you know yeah. they just have to wander around there and like if the, if the old owners the families have to come around i can't imagine the pain that you raised your whole family there you were raised there and you just have to look at it and it's no longer yours it was taken from you
4: what do you want people to know who who drive over your community every day
2: i think the superficial thing is like why these buildings stand out like why are these painted as opposed to the other ones yeah and they'll and it'll lead them down hopefully a little rabbit hole of like oh yeah anthony garcia painted this and and they did this in collaboration with coalition and and they're doing that because of this the other side of it i think is just a a demonstration of like the difference between what we can do and what they offer us
4: anthony can i ask you really quickly i feel like i don't think about your work as inherently political but this feels a little bit like a political act of resistance how do you think about your art?
5: I mean, me as an artist, every time I do paint a public piece like this, it is to plant a seed to kind of shed light on what is going on in those neighborhoods. I feel like doing pieces like this opens these conversations. We wouldn't be here today if we wouldn't have painted this. The more that I start to describe what is behind a lot of these pieces, the more impact it makes on the community. and. I'm just now realizing that because I'm not that much of a wordsmith when it comes to social media or just explaining my work. But I'm really glad that we worked together kind of on this narrative when we did. And the amount of attention that it brought was really exciting because it's kind of what we wanted in the first place to shed a light on this. So I want to continue to do some more stuff like this.
4: If people want to know more about the land trust or how they can support GES in, in growing the land trust. What's the best way to do that?
2: Uh, we have uh, the GES Coalition website, of course. Tierra Colectiva. You'll find the hyperlink to the website for the land trust as well. Our land trust is called Tierra Colectiva, which means collective land. Um, so look at look us up that way. You could inquire if if people are really serious about supporting it. Uh, hit us up. You know, uh, like actually hit us up.
4: Thank you so much. Thank you. After speaking with Anthony and Alfonso, we checked in with the National Western Center to hear how these buildings fit into their future plans. A spokesperson said the two former family homes are still part of their long-term redevelopment effort, but that portion of the project is, quote, unplanned and unfunded at this time. But still, there's no promise that these one-of-a-kind pieces will be around in 10 years. So next time you're in the area, I recommend making some time to take it all in. Or find us on Instagram at CityCastDenver and check out pics and videos from today's episode.
0: You just heard an excerpt from CityCast Denver, the local Denver Daily News podcast. Learn more about subscribing to the podcast at denver.citycast.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today's Morning Magazine. Special thanks to Stacey Johnson, Jack Armstrong, Jake Crowley, Alexis Kenyon, and CityCast Denver for their contributions to today's program. I've been your host and producer, Shannon Young. If you'd like to comment on something you heard on KGNU, you can leave us a voicemail at 303-447-9911. Stay tuned for a commentary from Jim Hightower and then a public affair with Frank Dubovsky, That's coming up after the news headlines from the BBC.